More Strange Stories UK here again, Season 6, Episode 15, calling this one Double Murder at Aldington in Kent. Well, this podcast concerns the events that happened at the village of Aldington in Kent during May 1961. Aldington is a rural village with neighbouring villages Mersham, Lympney and Bilsington all being considered desirable places to live in the Garden of England in Kent. London is an hour's drive away and the nearby town of Ashford has a direct train route to Charing Cross in central London. The village is close to the beaches of Kent, the Kent coast and the isolation of Romney Marsh and France is just a ferry hop away. Well this story is quite unusual I think it's a little like a plot of an Ian McEwan novel. See what you make of it. Saturday, May the 13th, 1961. David Pilcher was delivering milk to an address called Pantile Bungalow. It was the gardener's cottage in the grounds of Pantile House at Aldington Village. He found the body of a woman he knew as Alice Buxton dressed in a nightgown sprawled across the porch covered in blood. Pilcher went to call the police, and when they arrived at the scene, they found another body, that of Herbert Buxton, in the scullery. Hubert was aged 35, he'd been shot in the head. His Belgian common-law wife, Alice, who was aged 38, had been beaten to death by a shotgun, part of which was found next to her body. Pantile House was owned by Gladys de Pomeray, and Herbert Buxton, who lived in the grounds at the bungalow, was the gardener and odd job man. When police investigated the murders, they found scraps of paper in the bedroom of the house. They collected these and put them together, and they formed a letter which had been torn to pieces. It seemed to be a letter sent to Alice by somebody called Hendrik. It had been sent to her while she was in Belgium, where Alice had recently returned after spending three weeks visiting her mother after her grandmother had died. The letter had been written in broken English, and I will read it as written. So the letter read, Dear Alice, I so sorry I did not see you Friday. I did not know where you was. My car was at the seaside. Perhaps you was in a hurry home because you wanted to see your mum. Never mind, I found out your granny is dead. Dear Alice, no worry much about granny. She was old. She had to die one day. Better for her and better for you and your mum, not so much work. I do not know what had happened. If I had known, I should take you the same night to Dover. Never mind, I still think of you because I love you. I will come and meet you in Dover if you let me know when you come home. You know what you said last. You will try, and I think it's best that no one knows. You can come by bus from Hive. I send you my address from my job. You have no worry if you send a letter to this address. Dear Alice, please do not do with me what you done last time. I send you this letter registered so I be sure you get it, and I wait for an answer. Just the same, I wait for you which day I come and meet you. Alice, if you send a letter to me, please print so I can understand. If you send me a letter, I will know you still want to meet me. If you don't send a letter, I know myself you know more nice with me but I hope you don't do that. Dear Alice, come back any day in the week, but not Sunday. It is not good for me. I wait for your letter. I wish you all the best. 
Same for your mum and auntie. Tell them no worry any more about Granny. Bye bye, Hendrik. Kiss you. Kiss, 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 kiss. Please let me know exactly what time you get into Dover. By deciphering this rather strange letter, it seemed that Hendrik had caught a ferry, probably as a foot passenger, from Dover to Ostend, to meet with Alice in Belgium, but had not been able to find her, and he had returned to the UK and was trying to make arrangements to meet up when she arrived back. Police later discovered that this letter had been written by the 14-year-old son of Hendrik, who had dictated what to write. Hendrik dictated what the boy should write. Police investigations about the events of the evening of May the 12th, 1961, revealed that Herbert Buxton was still working in the grounds of Pantile House at 8pm. Alice had been working in Hive and she arrived home by bus shortly before 5pm. A small light-coloured car, thought to have been a Hillman Husky, had been seen parked on a grass verge near the couple's home at 9.15pm. Two hours later, about 11.15pm, a cyclist had been seen pedalling down the lane leading to Pantile House. Whoever he was had not called in at the house. Detectives learnt that Alice Buxton had, was married to a market gardener living in Worcestershire. She had left him to go and live with Buxton. The market gardener, Mr Richard Frank Bateman, had then moved to Canada after the breakdown with his marriage to Alice. They had not been divorced and Alice was still legally Mrs Bateman. Richard, or Frank Bateman, was eventually tracked down by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police who informed him of Alice's death. The police discovered that Alice had become friendly with a Ukrainian woman called Gripa Nizmas. She met on a bus. The woman was married to a Polish refugee, Henrik Nymas, who incidentally owned a Hillman Husky car. Alice had invited the couple to visit her and they became close friends. The owner of Pantile House, Gladys de Pomeray, had been home with members of her family on the night of the 12th of May 1961. The next morning she had gone across to the Pantile bungalow to ask Hubert Buxton why he had not let the dogs out. This was part of his duties as gardener. This is when she stumbled across the body of Alice and ran screaming back to the house. The police were already on their way after being informed of the murder by the milkman. Scotland Yard were contacted and Detective Inspector John DeRose, also known as Four Day Johnny for his quick clear-up rate, was put in charge of the investigation. A mobile unit was moved into the garden on the Saturday. On the Sunday morning, as Gladys de Pomeray was being interviewed by the police, Henry Nismas called to the house. He had heard he said that he'd heard that the couple had been murdered and he was worried about their dog. They had a dog Snowy, a white Sky Terrier, but there were also other dogs, including an old English sheepdog which Henrik was asking about. The murder couple's terrier dog Snowy and the budgery gar were later rehomed according to newspapers. Police went to question Gripper and Henrik, being particularly interested in the whereabouts of Henrik on the night of the murder, as it was his name that was on the ripped-up love letter. Henrik's alibi was that he was with his wife during the estimated time of the murder, and his wife, Gripper, backed up Henrik's story. However, while searching his small holding, 
Officers found the stock of a double-barreled shotgun concealed in the hay in the shed, and this broken stock matched with a broken barrel they'd found next to the murdered Alice. That and the letter that the police had put together were conclusive evidence that he, that they, had found the murderer. Then a bloodstained bicycle was found in Henrik's garage. The police again questioned Gripper, the wife, who admitted that she'd lied about being with her husband Henrik during the night of the murder. It seemed that Henrik had been totally incompetent in trying to avoid detection, as he had clearly carried out the murders. Henrik was arrested. His wife now said that he'd left home about 11 o'clock or 11 p.m. on the night of May the 12th. She had not heard his car start, so uh, we assume he took the bicycle, and he returned 15 minutes later and washed at the kitchen sink. So this fitted in with the police theory that he had cycled to the Pantal bungalow, committed a double murder and returned to his home while leaving clues for the police to follow up. It seemed like a murder committed in passion without a great deal of thought. The police thought that Alice had been clubbed to death while Henrik, by Henrik with a shotgun after he had shot his, her partner Herbert Buxton. During the killing of Alice the shotgun barrels broke from the stock and Henrik had hidden the broken stock in a shed on his property which was about two miles away from the murder scene. Police thought that Herbert had been shot through the window whilst he was shaving. Alice would have heard the shotgun blast and tried to flee the house just wearing her nightclothes before she was clubbed to death. Earlier police records were to show that during early October 1960, eight months before the murders, a police constable, Fred Bisley, had found a couple having sex in a small light-coloured car, a Hillman Husky, at Hampton Hill near Hythe, near a disused quarry. That was the map reference TR133398 at the position which is marked Old Pits. It's an isolated place. It was reported that when the policemen came across the couple in the car, they'd covered it with a tarpaulin, and the police had described the car as rocking on its springs. The constable had discovered the reason when he drew back the tarpaulin. From his description, the couple were Alice and Hendrik Buxton and Hendrik Nismas. Nismas' car was a light-coloured Hillman Husky. So it was now obvious that Henrik and Alice had become lovers some months previously. The Buxtons had been murdered between 10pm and midnight on May the 12th. Asked about his movements that day, Nismas now told the police that he had arrived home at about 1.30pm and was in bed before 10. Doesn't make sense. Anyhow, he denied being Alice's lover, saying that he had signed off his letter to her with kisses because that's how... Both his wife and Alice signed their letters. Henrik then changed his story again, telling the police that Alice had shown him a pistol, telling him he was to get rid of Hubert, her partner, and Henrik's wife, Gripper, although he hadn't wanted to kill either or both either of them. Henrik then said that he had met with a man called George in a pub in Gillingham. Henrik said that he gave George £60 to kill Alice who he said was becoming a nuisance. Police searched for George, but perhaps not surprisingly, he was never traced. Police believed that Henrik had paid the Buxtons of two visits on the night of May the 12th, once when there was probably a quarrel, when his car was parked nearby, and again later when he cycled back with his shotgun. 
As I've mentioned before, there is never much information available about the victims of such crimes, although there's much more information about the offenders. Although not all of this is thought to be reliable, it doesn't seem fair that those that kill can set the scene in, in that it is their story that's examined and deconstructed, even if it's untrue. And quite often they smear their victims. Hubert Buxton was known as Roderick or Roddy. He and Alice had been together for some years and had a loving extended family. We don't get to hear their story. Henrik Nymas lived with his wife and three children at a small holding called Delta at Laws Lane, Mersham in Kent, just a couple of miles from the murder scene. He was described as being 49 years old, well-built and in good general health. There's some doubt about exactly where and where he was born. Um, eventually the birth date of the 14th of April 1912 was accepted. It seemed that he gave an account of his early life that seemed to be accepted by the investigators without much proof, and this was later questioned. Delta at Lawsley Mersham Kent seems to be the address of a roofing firm today. Henrik Nismas was born into a peasant family, probably at Bielisi in Poland, close to the border with Germany, although this was not verified. He claimed to have met he claimed to have a sister and brother who had moved to the USA, although he had never actually met them as he was born after they left Poland. His parents were both dead. He thought they had perished during World War II. He said that he had not seen them for over 20 years. He had little schooling, being supposedly ill with the effects of typhus during his school years. Although he was a very fit, healthy adult, whose only illness as an adult had been venereal disease. He certainly did not present as being a sickly child in the past. Henrik was illiterate, he could barely sign his own name, although he claimed he was good with languages, in that he could understand what was in his interest to understand. When he was 13 he said he started working on farms uh, in Poland, and when he was 21 he was constricted to serve in the Polish cavalry. This seemed highly unlikely at the time, someone from a peasant family being invited to serve with the elite Polish cavalry. Unless, of course, he was a stable boy or something. Anyhow, on being demobbed, Henrik said he was put on the reserve list and returned to farm work. But as a reservist, he was called up from time to time to serve for a month or two at a time. In 1939, after the outbreak of the Second World War, he claimed he was taken first of all by the Germans and put into a German uniform because he spoke Ukrainian and some German. He was an interpreter. But then he was accused of desertion by the Germans and put in a punishment camp, then transferred to a labour camp. He claimed to have spent time in Dachau concentration camp. But it's likely that Henry had made up much of this story. Subsequent inquiries found that Henrik had probably been living in Poland when the Germans invaded in 1939, uh, after which he was sent to work in the sugar factory in the Schleden district of Germany. This area, right in the centre of Germany, was occupied by the Americans in 1945. Henrik continued to live in the area for another couple of years, and there are suspicions that he had been married before going to a displaced persons camp at Goslar in Germany, before being sent to the UK on the 17th of October 1947. 
After the war, he met his present wife, Grippa, while, who was a Ukrainian and who was a deportee from Poland. They were married in the UK. They had one son and two daughters. His eldest son, John, was aged 14. He worked on farms and building sites in the UK as a labourer. He had a good work record and no police record. Henrik said he'd always been in good health. He never had to consult doctors and he managed to get a mortgage on a small holding at Mersham. While on remand at Wandsworth Prison in southwest London, further interrogation of Henrik was attempted. He would speak freely and lucidly of his past life and the events leading up to the crime, just as far as any suggestion that he had murdered the couple, and then he would have great difficulty in understanding the English language. He spoke to Polish psychiatrists, although he could converse in English easily. They were of the opinion that he was fit to plead and to stand trial. They found nothing to indicate any abnormality of his mind, which would subsequently diminish his mental responsibility for his acts. It was when Henrik was asked about his feelings in his present situation that he became emotional and tearful and expressed himself to be miserable. He also expressed sorrow about what had happened, although still persisting with the story that a person he had met in a public house called George had done the shootings. If there was a subject he did not want to discuss, he would become gloomy and terse, lowering his head, making it difficult to communicate with him. Henrik said that it had been impossible for him to return to his homeland at the end of the war, although the reasons for this were not stated. During the war, he claimed that to have been beaten up and knocked senseless by the, part, the Nazi police force, the Gestapo, on more than one occasion. Although, of course, there was no proof of this, and maybe it was a story to elicit sympathy so that he could be welcomed into the UK as a victim of Nazi oppression. Tests were done on Henry with the electroencephalograph machine, but this failed to show any evidence of abnormality in brain patterns. He had an outstanding mortgage on his small holding at Mersham, at Delta Laws Lane, of uh, £1,000. The trial was at Lewis Assizes before Justice Pilcher, starting on July the 17th, 1961, lasting for four days, ending on July the 20th. The prosecution alleged that Nismas had an affair with Mrs. Bateman, who decided to end it. Nismas then went to the Pantar's bungalow, shot Mr. Buxton, and then battered Alice to death to silence her screams. Henrik was claiming a different story, in that he'd been having an affair with Alice, but she had wanted him to finish his marriage with his wife and had suggested that he killed her. The prosecution's theory seemed to make more sense. The only person that knew the truth, of course, was Henrik, who would have wanted to show loyalty to his wife, Gripper, and his children. He would not want them to have thought that he had killed his lover and his lover's partner after she had finished with him. Better that he would killed his lover, who wanted his wife and children Jordan's mother killed. In that way, Henrik could uh, be seen as more of a hero. During the court case, it became clear that Henrik was manipulating the fact that English was not his first language. Anything connected with the offence had to be put in Polish, although he understood the questioning about his life in general. The impression was that Henrik was gaining time in which to think out answers, truthfully or otherwise. One of the witnesses at the trial was a 14-year-old boy who lived in the next-door property to the Pantal bungalow. 
although this was 500 metres away. He had been very good friends with John Nismas, who had written the letter to Alice on behalf of his father Henrik. The witness had seen the shotgun at Henrik's house. During the trial, there was no evidence of any mental disorder and very little sign of emotion, except when he was asked what was likely to happen to him and he became tearful. After Henrik had been found guilty of the murders and was sentenced to death, he wept loudly. At the trial, there was a lot of newspaper coverage. Henrik's wife and children had to move away from the village as it would have been impossible for them to have stayed in such a small village after what had happened. Henrik was being held at Canterbury Jail for after-trial reports. Then he was moved to Wandsworth Prison, where he was hung and buried within the prison grounds. Hubert, Hubert, one of the victims, was known as Uncle Roddy to his niece. She was only a young child at the time of his death. She said that she was told that her Uncle Roddy and Auntie Alice, who was the niece's godmother, had died in an accident. She had been told that a Polish man had followed them home from a dance, that he first shot Aunt Alice because she apparently had refused to dance with him at the dance when he asked her to. And then after that he shot Uncle Roddy, chasing him. After Uncle Roddy chased him, and the Polish man then beat him to death with a garden spade. The niece was called Kathy, and she remembered one day her dad walking into the house with a huge old grey English sheepdog saying that they were to give it a home now as Uncle Roddy and Auntie Alice had died. The niece said that another brother of Hubert went to identify Uncle Roddy and the appalling injuries that he had seen caused him a mental breakdown. There are some rather horrific photographs of the murdered people in the police file. To view this you'll have to go to the National Archives. I'll put photographs of the property after the murders on the Facebook site. Well, so ends another shorter podcast on uh, on murders. So I will thank Damselfly for providing the background music and I'll thank you for listening. Until next time, I'll say goodbye. Goodbye.